Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. In chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're looking at a few verses this morning. When I was serving as a youth pastor in my former church, I got a phone call one day that was an interesting phone call that kind of rattled me a little bit. My youth pastor, who I was a teenager under, he called me from another church in town, and they had just um, lost their youth pastor at, at, a, at another church. And so my youth pastor, who had I grown up under, and now I was serving as a youth pastor. Are you confused now? Hopefully you're not confused. Anyway, he called me up and he said, Listen, Sean, God has told me directly that you are to be our next youth pastor. And I struggled with that because I was in a place where I felt like God had called me to that church. I was having a thriving ministry. And I went home and I prayed about it and I discussed it with Dawn and I discussed it with my pastor. And I came away with the conclusion that that was not what God was telling me. So Houston, we have a problem. Because here you have my youth pastor saying, God has directly told me you're to be our next youth pastor. And I'm saying, this is not what God told me. So which of us is right? Who's listening to the Lord? Did God speak to him? Did God not speak to him? How do you deal with issues like this in your life where somebody comes to you and says, I've got a word from the Lord, and they tell you something specifically about you? Or they come to you and they say, God told me... And then dot, 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 fill in the blank. How do, you, how do you process things like that? How do you respond to, to issues like that? Well, we're coming to our close of 1 Thessalonians. And as we've been looking over the past few weeks at what is a gospel-centered church, we come to a very difficult passage of Scripture before us this morning. And if you remember, the overall teaching from chapter 5, the, the last portion here, is that a gospel-centered church is a church family brothers and sisters in Christ, that live at peace with one another. And we've already explored three ways that we do that. If you remember, the first is that we joyfully submit to the leadership of the elders. Number two is that we encourage patiently one another in areas of weakness and sin. And then we also looked at last week how we are to joyously have these Christ-like attitudes. And so today, we come to a passage of Scripture that's a little baffling, a little confusing, maybe abused at times, and it's controversial. But before we get to 1 Thessalonians, I just want to ask a foundational question this morning that I think will help set the stage for where we're going. Here's the question. What is the foundational role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church? 
Now, in order to answer this question, we need to go to what Jesus has told us in the Gospel of John. John 14, 16. Let's turn to John for just a few moments. Keep your finger in Thessalonians, and let's turn to the Gospel of John. And I want us to just read Jesus' words and let him speak for himself. John 14, 16. John 14, 16. This is what Jesus says. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Some of your translations may say counselor, comforter, advocate, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says that the Father is going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He will be called the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. It's very important that we understand that the Spirit leads us into truth. Let's go to John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Here the Holy Spirit is said to be our teacher. He's the Spirit of truth. He's going to teach us into all things. Let's go to John 15, 26. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Again, the Holy Spirit's called the Helper. He's called the Spirit of truth. He's going to bear witness about Jesus. All right, let's go to John 16, verses 7 through 14. John 16, verses 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see Me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. We can spend a lot of time looking at these passages of Scripture in John, but the bottom line is this. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And his job is to lead us into truth. So let me just ask you a very fundamental question. Will the Holy Spirit ever tell somebody to do something that's in direct violation of God's truth? No. And where is God's truth? God's truth is recorded to us in the written word of Scripture. With that being the background, let us now turn back to 1 Thessalonians. And let's read what Paul warns us about in relationship to the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through actually 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. 
Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What is Paul saying here? Well, here's the fourth big ticket issue that we've been looking at in relation to being a gospel-centered church, and it is this. You live in peace when you wisely discern the work of the Spirit. When you wisely discern the work of the Spirit. This is a difficult text. And I need you to pray for me as I clearly communicate this because I want to make sure that we accurately handle God's Word. But I, I see three issues that we need to address this morning that Paul tells us and how to deal with this issue of the Holy Spirit. And here's the first. Do not quench the Spirit. Some translations say do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not extinguish the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to go about answering this question in two ways. First of all, what does it not mean? And secondly, what it, does it mean? What does it mean to quench the Spirit? And how do you know you're guilty of it? Well, first of all, what does it not mean to quench the Spirit? What does it not mean? It doesn't mean that somehow you can sin as a Christian and lose the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that somehow you can get yourself out of having the Holy Spirit in your life if you truly are a Christian. It doesn't mean that He's going to go away from you. If you are a Christian this morning, if you're truly born again, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you permanently. Let me just remind you of the words that Jesus told us in John 14, 16-17. I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper to be with you, how long? Forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's in you forever. He can never leave you. He can never go out of you. He's, he's there in you forever. So quenching the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that he leaves you. Also, First uh, Ephesians 1, 13-14 says this. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit's been given to us in salvation to live in us permanently. He can never go away if you're truly a Christian. You can never lose the Holy Spirit. So that's not what it means here to quench the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean somehow you can do something to where He leaves you. He will always dwell in you. So what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? I think it's linked very closely to what Paul mentions in the book of Ephesians when it comes to grieving the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30-32, Paul very specifically says, Do not grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think they're tied together. Grieving the Holy Spirit. Here's the issue. Think of it this way. Grieving is how the Holy Spirit responds to us. Quenching is what we do to him. We can, he can be grieved by our sin. And what does it mean to quench the Spirit? 
to grieve the Spirit. It means simply this. You live your life in such a way that you stifle the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not His presence, because He can't leave you, but His working in your life. You can somehow stifle the working of the Holy Spirit in your life when you sin. Now, as we've been through 1 Thessalonians, we've seen how a true Christian is supposed to live, have we not? I want to just take us on a little trip to retrace our steps through 1 Thessalonians. As we're, as we're coming to the end here, I want to just remind us of, of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. If you're truly a Christian, this is what the Holy Spirit does in your lives. So, so go to chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. We're just going to briefly go through a few verses here. For they themselves report concerning you the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned from idols. You, you repented. One of the marks of a Christian is you're a, a repenter. You've repented from sin. The Holy Spirit has granted you repentance. Okay, let's go to chapter 2, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We're to walk in a worthy manner. We're to be repenters. We're to walk in a worthy manner. We're to walk in holiness. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. We're to stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in our faith. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul says here he wants us to grow in love. He wants us to grow in holiness. He wants us to walk in steadfast. He wants us to be repenters. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy. Chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God wants us to live um, sexually pure lives. Chapter 5, verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He wants us to be sober-minded, ready for the second coming, living holy lives, ready for Jesus' return. And then as, as we've been looking over the past few weeks, in, in chapter 5, verse 12, he wants us to, to um, respect and esteem the elders that are over us. And as we looked at last week, he wants us to encourage one another and, and to be joyful always and to pray constantly and to give thanks in all circumstances. So Paul has pretty much told us all throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians what it means to live a life pleasing to God. So when you don't live that way, you live the opposite of that way, you're quenching the Spirit's work in your lives. You're putting out His fire. You're grieving Him. When you walk in sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's ultimate goal for you? What's His ultimate goal for you? What, what is God's ultimate goal for every single person in this room? It's to be more like Jesus. To look more and more like Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. So, think about it this way. When you walk in unrepentance, when you walk in sexual immorality, 
when you live lives that are unholy, when you're not expecting the second coming, when you're not joyful, when you're not praying constantly, when you're not being submissive and encouraging and patient and thankful, when you're not living the way that God has called us to live and you're constantly doing that in your life as a lifestyle, it quenches the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Now, some of you may object at this point and say, Now, Sean, it sounds like what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit is not sovereign and we as humans can somehow thwart His purposes for us. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not sovereign. Because even if you do walk in sin at times, the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes even when we don't realize it to cultivate holiness in it. What I'm saying is this. You and I have a responsibility to grow in our faith. You and I have a responsibility to walk in holiness. You and I have a responsibility to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And so when you walk in rebellion, when you walk in defiance, when you walk in sin, basically what you're saying is, Holy Spirit, I don't want your working in my life. And it's going to stunt your growth. It's going to stunt your spiritual maturity. And so what you're doing is you're basically saying, I'm purposely quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in my life by by deciding to live in sin. So when you live in sin, when you live in disobedience, when when you don't walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you are quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. At this point, we've been looking at character. Character. What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's character. When you don't produce, when the Holy Spirit, when, when you're not living in the fruit of the Spirit, when you're not love, joy, peace, patience, patience. Is there such a thing as patience? That's like a combination of peace and patience, right? Patience, it's a new word. Peace, patience, kindness, love. When, when you're not demonstrating those things, when you're not living in the fruit of the Spirit and you're living in sin, you're, you're, you're quenching the work of the Spirit. This is all character issues, Okay. How you live the life of a Christian character-wise. The Holy Spirit producing Christian character, maturity. We understand that. We understand that when we live in sin, we thwart the work of the Holy Spirit's uh, maturing process in our lives. And so we have a responsibility to not quench the Spirit by walking in holiness by walking in purity, by obeying what Paul has told us to do here, by asking him to produce his fruit in our life. It's all about character. But there's another thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. It gets a little bit confusing here. So let's look at the second issue this morning, and let's navigate these difficult waters. In verse 20, he says, Do not despise prophecies. Now what in the world does this mean? There are two responses to the Holy Spirit, I think, in the life of most Baptist churches, or most churches. Number one, we're afraid of Him, so we don't talk about Him, because we're afraid everybody's going to start you know, like barking like dogs and jumping off tables and chairs, and things. Are, there's going to be a free-for-all, and it's going to go wild. And so we're really afraid of what the Holy Spirit does, and so let's just kind of keep Him in a corner. Let's not talk about Him. We're comfortable with God the Father. We're comfortable with Jesus the Son, but let's not, let's not let the Holy Spirit have much... Um, airtime because if he does then things are going to get crazy in the church now that's one extreme to never talk about the holy spirit the other extreme is to get crazy (laughs) in the church 
And you may have seen some weird manifestations of things like people getting slain in the spirit, barking like dogs, rolling around in the aisles, doing all types of weird types of things. There's, there's both extremes. But do you realize that Paul addresses what should be done in a worship service? In 1 Corinthians 14.33, Paul says this, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 1 Corinthians 14.40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So, when a group of people come together for a corporate worship service, is the Holy Spirit going to do anything that's, give me three, three, three litmus tests, okay? If it's chaotic, confusing, and crazy, it's not of the Holy Spirit. If it's chaotic, you don't know what's going on, it's all free for all. If it's confusing, you have no idea what's going on, and it's kind of just crazy, it's probably not of the Holy Spirit. You know, this quenching of the Holy Spirit often has more to do with the character, the fruit of the Spirit, than all this weird manifestations that you sometimes see on Christian television and TBN and things like that. So, what does Paul mean when he says, don't despise prophecies? Don't treat prophecies with content. Okay, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly because I don't want to do something I'm not supposed to do. What does it mean to despise prophecies? And what are prophecies? So let me attempt to answer this in two ways. First of all, what did it mean to the original audience then? And what does it mean for us today? I think it's very important that we make that distinction. What did it mean for them? And what does it mean for us today? Let me just ask you a very simple question. At the time that Paul was writing 1 Thessalonians, was the Bible complete? This is one of the earliest books. Do you have a completed scripture? No. Paul is writing in what we would call a transitional period of church history. The book of Acts in the early church is what we would call a transitional period in church history where God did, in fact, appoint prophets and apostles to directly speak the word of truth direct revelation from god to the mouth of a prophet he spoke and oftentimes it was written down in scripture as god's authoritative word so there was in paul's day prophets that received direct revelation from god and spoke Now, this is a transitional period in church history where the Bible has not been yet written, and so God has raised up for a a temporary transitional period of time spokespeople who get direct revelation from God, speak, and much of which is actually end up being recorded in written Scripture. Now, in, in Romans 12, 6, Paul says this, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy..." in proportion to our faith. So he lists prophecy as a gift. But he says, use it in proportion to the faith, in the original language. Not just our faith, but the faith. The faith. You know that there's a body of truth called the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Jude chapter 3, I mean Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing for you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There's a body of truth 
i.e. the scripture that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It's the faith. And so if you are to prophesy, Paul says, it's got to be in line with the faith. That's very important. Also, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how prophets were to function in the life of the early church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 29. Paul gives instructions. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and all the, spirit, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So even back then, when it was operative, it wasn't a free-for-all. It wasn't where people were just like going crazy and, and standing up and giving all this wacky stuff. What does Paul say here? You've got to go in order. You've got to speak one at a time. You've got to weigh what is said. You've got to have some type of checks and balances. Everybody's accountable. It's got to be done in a way that's not confusing, but a way that's in order. Now, with that being said, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church at a period of time where prophesying is going on. So why would Paul say to them, don't despise prophecy? Well, here could be the answer. For the past 400 years, there's not been any prophesying. When did God stop prophesying? At the end of the Old Testament. There's been 400 years of silence, and now all of a sudden in this transitional early church period after Pentecost, God has begun again to raise up prophets that are speaking the truth of God uh, from, from God. And so what Paul tells the church is, don't treat these with suspicion. Don't treat these with contempt. Don't just cast them off. Accept these as God's authoritative word. Don't despise prophecies. Don't treat them as if they are nothing. Don't make fun of these prophets. These prophets are from God. They're getting direct revelation from God. What they're saying from their mouth is authoritative as God's word, and it will soon be written down in authoritative scripture. And now you're probably asking a very important question that hopefully you're all wondering about. The $10 million question. Are there prophets today? And is the gift of prophecy still around today? This is debatable. Some of you will disagree with my stance, and that's okay. You have the right to be wrong. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. Let me give you my answer. And again, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I, I think in my understanding of the Scripture, this is where I stand. You can disagree with me, and that's fine. This is a secondary issue, so it's not a big deal. I do not believe that the office of prophet is around today, and I do not believe that the gift of prophecy in the sense that somebody receives direct revelation from God and speaks authoritatively, that it becomes Scripture, that is still going on today. Now, why do I say that? Let me just give you one verse of Scripture, a couple of verses of Scripture, to, to kind of answer that question. Ephesians 2, 19-20. Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is important. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
Paul says that the church was built on the foundation of two offices, prophets and apostles. Now let me just ask you a question. What are the prophets and the apostles? The apostles were direct eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ's resurrection. Are there any apostles today? In order to be an apostle, you had to have seen Jesus in the flesh resurrected. So if you see these churches where apostle so-and-so is the preacher, or this is an apostle so-and-so, there are no apostles today, because the the qualification for apostles is you had to have seen Jesus. And here's the thing. In 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul says, I'm the last apostle. And when James, the brother of John, died in Acts 12.2, they didn't replace him with the new apostle. So when those apostles died, actually John, the last apostle died, it was closed. There's no more apostles. Same thing with prophets. Prophets and apostles were built on the, they were, the foundation of the church was built on them. Why did you need prophets in those early periods? You needed prophets because what were they doing? They were receiving direct revelation from God and they were what? Writing the scripture. But now that we have the scripture written and now that it's closed and it's sufficient and God has spoken, we don't need prophets anymore to prophesy directly from God because his word is completed. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the writer says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now that Jesus is the final word of God, now that the church has been established on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, now that we've got a completed written scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, my argument is where there's no need for the prophecies anymore because we have everything we need in the completed book, in the scriptures. Once the scripture's been completed, there's really no need for prophecy today. Now some of you will say, Well, maybe there are prophets today. Maybe there are people that are prophesying today. Maybe there are people that receive a word from the Lord. And there are people that say, God told me so-and-so. And maybe you've met somebody or maybe you've experienced that. Let me just tell you some things here real quick. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when a prophet spoke from God, they were infallible and authoritative. And if they were wrong... In the Old Testament, they got stoned. So you got to make sure you're, you're right. If you're going to give a prophecy, if it, if it went bad in the Old Testament, you got stoned. Deuteronomy 18 says this. If you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So even in those days, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, while the scripture was being written, there were prophets that spoke presumptuously. There were false prophets. There were prophets that spoke things that didn't come true. Paul says even in that time that what a prophet says has to be weighed, has to be examined. So I believe that today there is no prophecy in the sense of receiving direct revelation from God and speaking it because the scripture is sufficient and it's closed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, for every good work. 
Now let me answer an objection. Because there may be some of you here this morning that believe that prophecy still happens in the sense that people receive direct revelation from God and speak a word of truth or a word of knowledge or a word to somebody that is God's revelation. Let me just ask a very simple question. If it is truly God speaking, then why are not the words that you've just spoken written down as Scripture? on authority with Scripture. Or to put it another way, when God speaks, does He not speak with authority? And if God speaks, does He use less authority at some times and more authority at other times, or is it all authority? So if God speaks, and this is His Word, it should have authority. So if you're saying, I got a word from the Lord and I'm speaking it, then it should have the authority of God and it should be infallible. And if it doesn't come true, if you have a word from the Lord and it doesn't come true, and what should happen then? You should be stoned. No, I'm just joking. That's not what should happen. Here's what I think happens. I think what people call prophecy today may actually be what we would call impressions from God. God in his sovereign providence can lead you, can guide you, can put impressions upon you to speak to somebody, to give a word of encouragement, to maybe bring the scriptures to bear. But you need to realize something. You're an infallible human, and if you're going to say, God told me, and you speak it, it needs to be tested against the infallible scripture. Here's how it practically works out in the life of a church. It can lead to a lot of confusion. Let's, let's play it out this way. Let's say somebody comes to you and says, I've got a word from the Lord for you. God told me such and such and such and such. And you take that and you're like, that's interesting. I've never thought about that before. I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of taken aback by that. Let me, go, let me go ask somebody else and get some advice. You go to another godly person and you ask them, and that person says, you know what? I think God told me blah, 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 and it's in direct conflict to what the other person said. So which person heard from God? And who's speaking for God? Because both believe they got a word from the Lord, they speak it to you, and it's in conflict. How do you know who to listen to? Because they're both saying, I've got a word from the Lord. It can come up with two completely different answers. Who's right, who's wrong? Let me give you a distinction. Let me, let me, tell you, let me give you a little bit of a distinction, how I think this may work out in the life of a church. What if I, as your pastor, came to you in a moment of counseling and I took an actual written portion of Scripture that you can read and I made personal application of that Scripture to your life situation, to where it spoke to you, it moved you, and if you had questions about it, you could go to somebody else and you could show them the Scripture and you could both examine to see that this is the written word that I've taken. I'm not giving you a direct revelation Here's the difference. If, if I come to you and say, God told me, and I speak to you what God told me, is God speaking right now? If God, if God told me, here's the point. I own that truth. You can't make that truth in the court of appeal by going and looking at the scriptures and examining if it's so. I own that truth because God told me there's no written documentation in the scripture to verify it, and so I can actually use that truth to control you. 
I could possibly manipulate you. I can actually abuse you. I can say, God told me to do this. And if you really respect your pastor, you can go do something that I may have heard or not heard from God. And I've seen people like live in a very unfreeing type of situations where uh, pastors and other people can, uh, can actually manipulate them by saying, I've got a word from the Lord and kind of manipulate you to do what they want you to do. Pastors do it all the time. Anytime a pastor stands up here and says, I've got a word from the Lord. And, and, and think about this. How would you respond to this if I said, I've got a word from the Lord. Every single one of you needs to um, give $10,000 to my retirement fund right now or we're not leaving. What would you say? Some of you would be like, is he really hearing from the Lord? Am, am I, am I, am, what, if he's, what if he did? What if he did? What if God is speaking to Sean right now and I'm disobedient? I'm despising prophecies. Or some of you would be like, now wait a minute, that sounds kind of fishy. Is there a passage of Scripture you can go and, and afterwards examine and say, where did Sean get that? Well, it came from his own mind and his own hearts. Because I have exclusive control over that. Okay. It leads to a lot of confusion. So, if prophecies in the sense that God giving direct revelation to people, the writing scriptures, is not happening today, it was a transitional period in, in church history, what does it mean for us today to despise prophecies? Well, if you think of prophecy today in the sense of a, a, the preached word, when a pastor preaches the word, it means that we accept and we sit under and we joyfully received the preached word. We, do, we don't, we don't want to um, stifle God's word. We don't want to stifle the preaching of God's word. We want to obey God's word. We don't want to treat it as if it's nothing. But if we just stopped right there, I could be abusive, couldn't I? Because I could come up here and say, this is what God's word says, and I can tell you whatever I want you to hear. Notice what Paul says next. Number three, test everything. Why do you think he put that right after despised prophecies? Verse 21, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Even back in that transitional period of church history where there was prophetic utterances going on, Paul still told them to test, to weigh, to discern, to wisely discern. So you need to be real careful when a pastor or teacher stands up and says, God told me, and what directly comes out of their mouth is a direct violation of God's word. You can, you, can be, you can be sure that God did not tell them. It was either their own mind or it was Satan. But if a, if a pastor stands up and says, God told me, blah, 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 and it's in direct violation to his word, God did not tell him. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and they're all over the airways, and they're all over Christian television, and they're all over the internet. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Here's the bottom line. The only thing that we can test with absolute authority and inerrancy and accuracy and infallibility is the written Word of God. The Scriptures are our ultimate authority. These Scriptures are infallible. Humans are not. So even if it comes from the mouth of this pastor from this pulpit, you should not automatically take my word for it just because I'm standing here. You have permission to go check to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. 
What did the Bereans do? Not our friends down the street, but the Bereans back in Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11. Now these Jews, these Jews from Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. And here's what it says. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were. It was Paul that came to them and preached. Did they just accept Paul's word for it? Because actually it's Paul the apostle. What does it say? No, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. So that's what you need to do. You need to be a good Berean and test everything. Test everything against the scriptures. Examine them daily to see if it's true. Because when I stand up in the pulpit or any pastor or preacher or teacher stands up in the pulpit, this is our goal. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling this word of truth. So you've got to make sure that you have a responsibility. You have the right. You have the responsibility. You have the privilege. You have a priesthood of believers as a Christian to examine, test what comes from my mouth or any other Christian's mouth. Go back to the source and test everything to the filter of this inerrant word. Now, let me ask you another question that maybe throw you for a loop. What is your responsibility for the preaching on Sunday mornings? Not much. That's your job, Sean. I thought that's what we paid you for, to sit in your office for 40 hours and look at commentaries and study the original languages and come up here and, and obliviate at us. That's a big word for spewing whatever. Question, what role do you have in the preaching of God's Word? I'm going to challenge you this morning to be good listeners. Listen to what our friend Art Azurdia has said in his book, Spirit-Empowered Preaching. Art's preached in our church. He says, One predominant sensation should characterize God's people. Active expectation. They must gather on the Lord's Day expecting to hear the voice of God through preaching. This must bring, they must bring an eagerness to hear, a readiness to submit, and a predetermination to obey. So what I want to do is I want to give you five practical guides to what I would call expository listening. You're like, what in the world is expository listening? If you don't like that term, how to listen to sermons, okay? Have you ever thought about how do you listen to sermons? Or you just come in here like, I just come in here and listen. Let me give you five ways, because what does the Scripture say here? Don't quench the Spirit, don't despise prophecies. How do you do that? You could come into this place and quench the Spirit and despise prophecies if you're not careful. So let me give you five little practical ways that you can come into this room every Sunday and be prepared to actively engage the preaching of the Word. Here's the first expect God to speak. When I open this Bible and I explain it faithfully and we expose you to the text and we talk about what here, what's in here, God is speaking to us. Now, I'm not receiving direct revelation from God through my head and speaking to you. I'm receiving direct revelation from the Scriptures and I'm explaining it to you. And anytime the Scriptures preached, God is speaking. So if God is speaking right now during the preaching of his word, we can't come in here flippant. We can't come in here casual. We can't come in here half-hearted. We've got to come in here expecting that when I come in here, I don't care who the preacher is, if it's Pastor Sean, if it's Pastor Andrew, whoever, when the word of God is preached, God is speaking. And if God is speaking, we need to be listening and ready to hear what he has to say to us. Number two, submit to God's word preached. Are there times when you walk in this place and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he dealt with that subject. Oh my goodness, are we going to talk about that scripture? That's offensive. 
God steps on my toes. Can you just skip that whole Old Testament part? Let's just talk about love. I mean, there's a lot of us, a lot of us think we know better than God. Don't ever think you know better than God. When you come under the preached word, God may hit you between the eyes right where you need to be hit on a Sunday morning. And so you need to be ready to submit to whatever the word says, you submit to it. You submit to it because it's God's word. Even if it confronts you, even if you don't like it, even if it steps on toes, God is coming to change you. Number three, test what I say by making sure I stick with what the passage says. I try my hardest to take you step by step, verse by verse, to show you so that when you, when you walk out of here on a sunny morning, you're not like, where in the world did he get that? Or, man, that sermon sure was a lot of stories about somebody's life, or these were like just happy little illustrations. No, you need to make sure that when you leave this place, you can come out saying, ah, I see where he got it. It's right in front of me. He took us through the verse. He took us to the passage. I, I'm examining, I'm testing everything by the Scripture. So make sure that I stick with what the passage says. Number four, God does something powerful during the preaching of the word in corporate worship that cannot be duplicated on TV, internet, or podcasts. Now, I'm not against podcasts. I listen to them all the time. I'm not against you listening to sermons on the internet. Some of you may be listening to this post, you know, after the fact. I'm not against that at all. It's, an, it's, an, it's a unique way to use technology. But let me just say this. There's something unique that happens when we gather all together as God's people under the authority of his word. God could show up and speak to all of us at one time in a very powerful way that can't be duplicated when you're by yourself listening to your iPod running and listening to a sermon. Now, you can listen to that and get something from that, but God shows up. So here's the point. You need to be here. You need, you need to think, man, if I'm not at church on Sunday morning, I may miss out on what God's going to say to us as the gathered congregation. And here's number five. Have a predetermination to obey what the Bible says and do it with immediate joy. Come into this place with the predetermination that I'm going to obey whatever the Bible says today and I'm going to do it immediately and I'm going to do it with joy. I'm not going to prolong my obedience. Whatever I'm confronted with today, whatever the, the message is today, whatever God has spoken to me today, my determination when I walk through those doors, before I even come and sit down, my predetermination I've prayed up is that I'm going to obey what I hear today. And I'm not just going to be a hearer of the word. I'm going to be a doer also. And when I walk out that doors, I'm going to do it with joy and I'm going to do it with immediate obedience. Come ready. You see, the ultimate issue this morning is, are you honoring the Holy Spirit? And there's two things we've looked at. Character. If you're walking in sin, if you're walking in disobedience, if you're walking in, in sexual immorality, if you're, if you're walking in a way that's not worthy of your calling, you're stifling, you're quenching, you're grieving the Spirit. On the flip side, if you have a casual attitude towards the preached word of God and you're not ready to obey and you're not ready to expect God to do great things and you don't submit yourself under the preached word, you're also quenching the spirit and despising prophecies. And so this morning what I'd ask us to do is to don't quench the spirit. Don't do it. Submit to his leadership today and have a predetermination that when I leave this place, I'm going to obey with joy and I'm going to obey immediately. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful for those prophets of old that 
spoke directly from you. We think of Moses and Isaiah and Daniel and Matthew and Paul and Peter and John and the writers of Scripture, Lord, that you've given to us as gifts to write down your very word. We're thankful that we can read it and understand it and obey it. Lord, we're thankful for teachers in our lives that can come and explain it where where we don't know exactly what it says. And Father, we want to be a people that walk in obedience to your will. We want to be a people that don't quench the Spirit. We want to be um, living lives that are holy. We want to be living lives that are pure. We want to be an encouragement to others around us. And we also want to have a, have a, a submissive attitude to your word. That when we come into this place and the word is preached, help us to realize that, God, you are speaking directly to us. And you have a message for us today, a right now message for us today. And Father, the joy and the mysterious thing about it is that when it leaves my mouth and it goes into the ears of people in here, Holy Spirit, you do a bunch of different things to different people in different ways and you meet them in all different sorts of ways and you bring conviction and other, and it's just, it's an amazing thing what you're doing even right now, Holy Spirit. So I thank you for your work, Holy Spirit. I thank you for your work of grace. I thank you for your work of making the scripture come alive. I thank you for your work of conviction. I thank you for your work of guiding us into all truth. I thank you for being the spirit of truth. I thank you for powerfully showing up in our lives to do what what I can't do. No preacher is good enough. No matter how hard we think we are, no preacher is good enough to produce life change. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. So I trust you this morning to do a change in hearts and minds and lives as we all submit to your word. Help us to be discerning. Help us to test everything. Help us to live under the authority of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.